So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. So I think starting from the far left, a kind of really quintessential tanky one was someone named Fifi. Xinjiang is rich in oil, like eight question marks. The CIA knew for years, question mark. Do you see what's happening? Question mark. I'm going to be thinking about this all day. And I was just like, girl, think a little bit harder for me, please. Bad China Takes, an anonymous Twitter account that combined vicious takedowns of, well, Bad China Takes with the blog WokeGlobalTimes.com that does deep dives into everything from tanky subcultures to China's Xinjiang policy is one of the best things to hit China Twitter. Bad China Takes was recently unmasked as Jake Eberts, a young DC-based China analyst. So I started this Twitter account on a whim after seeing a tweet by Bill Gertz, who is an esteemed reporter of the Washington China Press Leagues, compare something about wokeism to the Cultural Revolution. And I was like, yeah, no, I really don't vibe with that. I think that's actually a really stupid analogy. I had zero intention or expectation that it would turn into what it has. But here we are. It's been uh, one year and one week, almost exactly, since I started it. Bad China Takes is like part gimmick account part personal blog. The kind of core content that runs it is me taking screenshots or quote tweeting particularly asinine things that people have said about China broadly construed, whether it's US-China policy, greater China policy, the Chinese language. I, I am in some ways a cyber bully, but like, I like to think there's at least a constructive aspect to that. And I span a particularly interesting range of political orientations. I myself sit pretty thoroughly on the left, but I'm not so far to ultra Maoist left where I think China is a, a complete utopia, but I'm also pretty disaffected with how US-China relations are handled within DC and the general, I would say, atmosphere around US-China relations and China policy, both in media um, and online on Twitter. The basic core of it is just me making fun of people who say really dumb things on Twitter. That's the bread and butter. But I add a lot of commentary and then particularly some kind of more quote unquote big ticket things, important things. I do a lot of my own background research and try to at least make it a little bit more informed and educational. Although I've, I've been derelict in that duty for a little bit. I'm curious though, what was it like living this double life and having everyone try to guess who you were? Well, I do have definitely something of a narcissist streak. And so on one hand, it was incredibly gratifying to think that I was living rent-free in a lot of people's heads, but it was also very bizarre. People often assume that I was some extremely powerful political aide or think tanker or like PhD. One tanky who we'll discuss later, but basically like a Maoist or Stalinist who really does not like me. I thought I was Brian Thum, who is a Harvard PhD who's currently teaching in the United Kingdom, which is still hilarious to me. I think at one point I did go back and visit family. And so I was literally sitting on my mom's couch, sending some of these tweets and like engaging with like pretty established people. And then people thinking that I was like a Harvard PhD. It was truly classic. And to be clear, how old are you, Jake? I'm 25. So I'm still a young little whippersnapper. I have lived in the greater China region for around two years in total overall throughout my life. And so it's not that long. I definitely have a complex there. I feel like sometimes I'd be listening a little bit more than I'm talking, but we'll get more into what that looks like. There is also a privilege aspect too. I definitely had a lot of Chinese Americans and, and other Chinese overseas, especially in the Commonwealth, talk to me saying, if I said what you said, I would have been skewered by now. And so there's a weird kind of balance there of I'm not Chinese. And so I try to defer to Chinese voices. 
is I try to make it very clear from when I started the account that I'm a white dude and I'm living in DC and I had an FAQ pinned on my profile for a while. It's like, I'm not speaking as an authentic Chinese person living in China. So that was like, it was very strange. It was very weird. A whole lot of dynamic. A whole lot of thoughts going on there and a huge dynamic to navigate. And the only people who knew were my friends, most of whom don't really follow anything in the China sphere. So they were all mystified. So Jake, who pays your rent? Is it the CCP, the CIA, or George Soros, or a combination of all three? Um, so I'm an independent contractor for the CIA and NED. They gave me W-2s, but they only send out 1099s, which sucks because oh. contractors... You have to pay tax rates. You have to pay taxes every quarter, which is real freaking annoying. Soros does via Venmo, and I may or may not actually report those on my income tax forms. And then my Chinese handlers just drop off sums of cash and white rabbit candies. And Guo and Gui actually still owes me a bit of money, but I have a, a land on one of his yachts, so it's fine. <laughs> Background joke there for those who are still not quite familiar is that I get accused a lot, like, because I don't... I really don't fit in with like the hawkish or dovish crowd particularly. I probably tend to be a little more of a dove, but I get variously accused of being a State Department shell or an agent of the Chinese Communist Party probably ever the day. But I started collecting screenshots of them each time. I get accused nowadays a little bit more of being like State Department CIA asset because I started focusing a lot on like Xinjiang, but it's still pretty healthy 60-40 balance. What is a bad China take? Strictly speaking, it's something that either I or the other bad China takes account, the account that we're not as big of a fan of because he sucks, it says it's a bad China take, but I actually wrote a little blog post about this early on in my little rise to Twitter fame. There were four like kind of recurring archetypes that I saw a lot. I call it comprehensive, but it's not actually comprehensive. There's mystic China knowledge, people who are just like death to China, then there's tankies, and then there are bootlickers. Um, and so going down in that order, mystic China knowledge is anyone who is pretty orientalist, like bizarre assertion about East Asian culture, or especially Chinese culture, the language, uh, and using it as some way to like divine what we know about modern Chinese politics. A subset of this is something I call phrenology for words, where someone takes a Chinese word or characters and like, breaks them down in their constituents. And instead of doing something like etymologically fascinating with it, just are, this is why China is the way it is. A classic example of that is talking about as crisis plus opportunity. The Chinese equivalent of saying, what's the opposite of progress? Congress. And then passing that on off as deep, fascinating, and insightful. Another favorite one is Chinese don't have a word for goodbye. They say zaijian, which means we will see again. And that speaks a lot about the importance of relationships when you're dealing with Chinese people and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, because I've never texted anyone see ya. Yeah, a lot of that weird, maybe auto-orientalism comes from Chinese authors because it really is, again, the English equivalent is talking about progress and Congress and then like writing an entire article about that. And it's like, okay, this yeah. only gets you so much mileage. It is interesting staying on the mysticism stuff, how often you see those tropes trotted out, not just by the Robert Spaldings of the world, but also Chinese state leadership and very famous Chinese people who write in English and are trying to convince the West that China's super cool or like really special or should be treated in a special yeah, way we for, all, for some we reason. Yeah, we all like categories. I think so. Part of that problem I blame on games like Civilization. Love them, but they, I think they've engendered a sort of assumption that civilizations and peoples need to have these or these traits that everyone has shared over time that we can use. If we can just dissect those going forward, everything will be fine. This is how we understand them. A lot of mystic China leans really heavily on Confucius in a way that becomes historical and anachronistic. There's certainly a lot to talk about in terms of collectivism versus individualism, but the quintessential one of the past year has been like because of Confucianism, these countries have done well fighting the pandemic, um, which is a little bit more difficult to say now that Taiwan and Vietnam are starting to show upticks in cases. But it's really an embodiment of just really lazy analysis that's frustrating to see over and over again. 
I don't know if we can just blame it on strategy games. I've been reading these Alan Taylor American Revolution history books randomly, which have been fantastic, and then went down a few wormholes of founding fathers writing stuff about China, and they're saying all the same stuff. The example that always pops into mind is The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which is a book by uh, an anthropologist named Ruth Benedict. It was published in like 1946, and it was a hit um, because it supposedly explained everything about Japan and why the Japanese are the way they are, super orientalist. It, it popularized this distinction between guilt cultures and shame cultures, which has still popped up since then. Pretty widely panned nowadays in the United States and anywhere else, but it's that kind of really pseudoscientific deep dive into the Orient that I think, at least from the West, underlines a lot of the mystic China knowledge sort of stuff. So that's where my annoyance with it comes from. All right. Death to China. What is that? Those are typically the hard right, although occasionally more liberal types in Taiwan and Hong Kong, or people who are sympathetic with Taiwan or Hong Kong, who are convinced that the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China are a blight on the earth. All of state society resources must be dedicated to their destruction and downfall. Genghis Khan 2.0, Nazi Germany, that kind of thing. The problem is, for a lot of people, it comes from a place of like genuine trauma and anger that has been exacted on them by the Chinese government. And that's totally legitimate, in the sense that there is a legitimate anger response there. The frustrating part is when that turns into really bigoted and blinding rage that is really not at all circumspect about what that sort of hatred means when it's translated into lobby on Capitol Hill, for instance. I think it's actually pretty counterproductive. But yeah, most most probably there are people who just like any discussion or contact with China that does not first and foremost put forth this idea that it is an evil communist dictatorship that is going to result in a blight on humanity is invalid. And so you see people who do translation work and things like the commentary in Chinese politics getting emails being like, you, I can't believe you're treating them seriously. There's no such thing as law in China. It's, you know, godless heathen pit of despair and suffering. And sometimes it gets pretty hilarious. I've seen people on Twitter claim that there are no free birds in China because pollution has killed them all. Just really absurd things like that. And that's the core of the death of Chinese squad. And they're just people who don't think that there's any sort of redeeming quality about living in modern China and that there's no real way to have any sort of productive discussion or even relationship with the country at all as uh, a Western power. Tankies. Tankies. I love tankies. I think tankies and I have the best relationship, by which I mean the worst. The word itself comes from the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 which was an uprising against the general repressiveness of the Hungarian Communist Party. And so a lot of labor organizers and students staged a revolution, and the Soviet Union rolled in a bunch of tanks and crushed the uprising and reinstalled a, a loyalist government to Moscow. That divided the Western left, like the hard left, a Soviet, uh, socialist and communist parties mostly split with the Soviets, deciding that that was really unacceptable. But the minority who stayed around and were just like, nope, Stalin was great. Everything the Soviet Union had done is good. Those are what we call tankies. And today they are pretty politically obscure, but incredibly online and sources of a lot of disinformation related to basically any country that is not in NATO. They tend to lionize Everything from a really kind of bizarre smattering of countries under the guise of anti-imperialism. Russia, Iran, China, Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea. Some of them were nominally communist, but others like Iran and, and Russia just being completely not at all like the other ones. I guess strains of thought and tankyism about China. The general kind of drama seems to be a lot of them understand that there are issues with China, but they don't think they should ever talk about them because China is under attack enough by the West. And so the upshot is they really just treat it as a total paradise. And this comes through a lot, for instance, in, in discussion of Xinjiang and what's happening 
happening to the Uyghurs. Just the assumption that it's a CIA plot to destabilize China. There's nothing bad happening there. Really just straight party line. They've been straight party line since the Cold War. Rumor on the street is they were behind my doxing, actually, even though that information was fed to an operative of the Republican National Committee. There was a whole lot of online sleuthing there, apparently done by us and Tanky. But those takes are only like, everything in Xinjiang is fine, or China has more parties than the United States does in its Congress, therefore it is more democratic. It's just these kind of absurd historical views of China that treat it more like a fantastic wonderland for their political imaginary rather than an actual real place with real people and real problems and real issues. And the psychological death to China being driven by your family and friends being wounded by the CCP regime is one that kind of makes sense to me. Tankies, I have a harder time understanding what's the underlying motivation there. I have thought a lot about that. I wrote an essay about it actually once because I was fascinated by these people. I was like, what has to be going through your mind to look at like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and be like, this place is great. There's just so much going on there. So I did this and, and the reasons a lot of them hate me and it's totally well-deserved. There are a couple of them who I did pretty like in-depth case studies on. I was like, I am fascinated by you. It's locked down. I don't have anything better to do. So I'm going to listen to your podcast and read your like Tumblr post and figure out like what the hell is going on with you people. And so my kind of first thesis was called Tankies in Despair, meaning people on the left who then become super disillusioned with the status quo and with the constraints that exist in electoral democracy and they go communist and they as a means of not falling into total nihilism about the state of the world, they create these kind of like savior states where things are perfect and fine and where even though we've heard things are really bad in North Korea or something, we know that they're actually okay because the immortal science of Marxism, Leninism, whatever tells us that it is and that's what we can see from whatever obscure evidence they pull up. It really is a very weird. Now I lean more towards it's a lot of LARPing and it's a fun online community. A lot of them are children. A lot of them are literal teenagers. I think it's smart kids who are still children who have a sense of justice and then they learn, for instance, that, oh, you know, what I was taught in middle school about the Soviet Union wasn't entirely fair. It wasn't a screaming hellish death trap for everybody at all times. And then they take that at the extreme to be like, oh, everything that's ever been told to me by the mass media and my history textbooks is just 100% wrong. It's a hyper correction. And just the dynamics, especially of Twitter, make it very insular community, but it's very good at lashing out. They're very organized in that manner. And they don't do a whole lot of in-person organizing because they tend to be not very agreeable people. But I view them as a cancer of the left. People I know who do important organizational work just describe them as really not fun people to be around. They're a pretty toxic presence and they do a lot of harm in real life too, despite their small numbers but yeah i am waiting for someone to write a phd thesis on them because again it is there's a for instance a very large number of trans women who are really into the north korea and that fascinates me as a gay man the idea of an lgbt person just looking at north korea and being like yes it's mind-blowing and so again if you're a sociology phd or something listening to this please do that i will read the heck out of that thesis because it it needs to be written. We had trans come up in the podcast I recorded earlier today of the hacker community being mm-hmm. also like overly represented yeah. in with trans folks. I wonder if there's like a two birds in one stone way of taking on that a lot, of the, a lot of the trans women I know, I don't know them personally, but who have gone down the road of tanky down. I think being a trans woman is hard in the United States. Being trans woman hard is very hard in general. And so a lot of them have gone through legitimate trauma and really shitty life experiences. And I think they do project a desire for a better world. In this case, North Korea, because transphobia is pretty widespread worldwide. North Korea being such a black box, really, that you can paint whatever you want onto it. You can paint a progressive vision of queer equality and rights if you really want to. And that's tempting to do. And I think it's incredibly misguided and requires ignoring mountains of evidence of things like concentration camps and labor camps. There's definitely a very statistically significant portion of people who just love North Korea. It's very fascinating. Bootlicking. Bootlicking is the kind of catch-all. That's the fourth of the my four-pronged typology. The best way to describe it is someone who has a lot of interest in maintaining status in China and aren't necessarily Marxist-Leninists, but go out of their way to make sure that everyone knows that they think China's great. A lot of them have gigs with Chinese media.
media and things like that. And a lot of them make you know pretty valid criticisms of Western foreign policy, but just because of the places they've chosen for themselves in terms of career path, they know that they can't really go down um, a line of actually really deeply criticizing what's also going on in the country that they're often located in, which is China. A lot of them are Westerners. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party has done, in objective historical terms, pretty phenomenal things in terms of lifting people out of poverty. And people are pretty broadly supportive of it in China, even if you control for things like censorship, authoritarian settings, having opinion surveys is obviously a little bit fraught of an endeavor, but even controlling for things like that, it's no big secret that the Chinese Communist Party is not unpopular. And so I think bootlickers take it a, a step further. It's mainly the catch-all for a lot of the Western people who prop up in state media and by the vested economic interest in making things in China look to be super perfect, but who aren't really Marxist-Leninists. It's much more of a pretty solid, just like self-interested sort of uh, a stand there. Have you spent much time watching their YouTube channels? I personally can't stand it. Uh, but... they're, they're, I mean, I first, uh, when I really did deep dives on Xinjiang denialism, and it, it's frustrating, I think, because a lot of it is just so patently disinformative. But there is, I think, among particularly younger generations, a lot of pretty justified disillusionment with Western foreign policy, particularly the United States. If you're my age, you've grown up in the shadow of two horrendous only now just ending wars in the Middle East that have caused massive amounts of destruction and death. And so there is an inherent skepticism, I think, of the idea that the United States or really anywhere can do anything good ever. And I don't think that's a particularly super informed view, but it's not one that comes out of nowhere. And I think that more for a lot of people, there's an economic part of it too. For some people, it's just purely selling their soul, charlatanism, I'm going to make money doing this. I think for some people, I think particularly for overseas Chinese, a small number of them. And there's a really good essay on this by a guy named Brian Hio called the, the Chiao Collective and Chinese Diasporic Nationalism that breaks down like what that means for a lot of people. And they tend to fall more to the tanky category, but it's, it really is that. And those YouTube videos, yeah, are just incredibly frustrating and so freaking annoying to go through, especially when you need to go through them and figure out what they're actually saying and then write responses to it for your dumb little blog, which is what I did for some of them. More power to you, Jake. We did our typology, but I think we we should now get to the get to the candy, which is your favorite bad China takes. Let's start far left and work our way towards the right. So I think starting from the far left, a kind of really quintessential tanky one was someone named Fifi. Xinjiang is rich in oil, like eight question marks. The CIA knew for years, question mark. Do you see what's happening? Question mark. I'm going to be thinking about this all day. And I was just like, girl, think a little bit harder for me, please. This is an embodiment of kind of the tanky mind where it is really like a manichaean good versus bad, black versus white, good being anyone who's not the United States or native, thinking that everything's like that meme of the Iraq war where it's just exclusively about oil. I complain a lot that it's if you're going to do that, you could at least be a little more creative, make it about rare earth metals or something. The oil <laughs> thing is just so... And I, I think this tweet was really funny because I got into... This was relatively early on. This was in September. So I was only in Bad China Takes Game for a couple months at this point. I made the mistake of trying to engage with people and like why this is a really stupid, just an asinine way of thinking about things and ended up like having to argue about like, the petrodollar and other various BS, which was a mistake. Xinjiang is obviously geopolitically tinged. Like that's indisputable, but the idea that it's like a manufactured crisis so the CIA can get more oil is so unbelievably stupid to me. And sociopathic. You have to read all the testimony of victims and be like, no, these are CIA plants and just what? Go see a therapist, please, or something. The uh, Chow Collective. So Chow Collective is an interesting group of individuals. They're overseas Chinese who live um, in the United States and have decided that China can do nothing wrong. They're much better at like the propaganda game than the actual Chinese government is. And that includes pretty hefty denial of atrocities in Xinjiang and things like that. But one thing that they posted was that little meme where it's like a brick wall and a rabbit or something peeking out from behind it. It's like China's National People's Congress has more political parties represented than the U.S. House and Senate, which at face value is true. There are more, there are, you know, the eight Democratic parties in the NPC. The NPC is really functionally rubber stamp and very rarely exercises independent political authority. And unless the number of parties is one in a Congress, the number really doesn't tell you anything about how democratic a country is. You can have plenty and that means nothing. The, the minor Democratic parties in China are obviously 
completely subordinate to the Chinese Communist Party. It's just such an asinine. It's got like 500 likes and was blowing up. So, wow, this is such deep analysis. It's just like exhausting. It really is exhausting. It really is like middle school debate level thinking. And it's frustrating too, because then I have to sit here and be like, look, I know the Senate in particular sucks. This is not me defending the United States system of representation because it is awful. But it's just this kind of thing where it, it, it takes more time to refute bullshit than to produce it. And that's how I felt a lot about my Twitter career for a while now, because <laughs> it's things like this where you're like, it's literally true that there are more parties there, but that is not at all reflective of any sort of like meaningful metric of political freedom. So yeah, that's another fun one from the left. Center. New York Times legendarily not understanding WeChat. Even though they have plenty of people who work there who do understand WeChat? Someone in the New York Times wrote that WeChat is not widely used in the United States, which is true. And then, except for one key group, Chinese-born software engineers in Silicon Valley and other high-tech workforces who use it to collaborate on tough mathematical software or engineering problems, trading solutions back and forth. Proprietary data can be scooped up by Chinese intelligence services, an American official said. So this is not only concerning because it's a gray lady newspaper of record saying this, but also because apparently this is something an American official said. And I think it really speaks to just the stunning degree of ignorance that goes into a lot of reporting and talking about China. And a lot of that comes from sources that are really not too knowledgeable. I've worked with people who are in cases like these, and I get really frustrated because there's a lot of really sheer ignorance or assumption of just malice when really much more simple things like greed or stupidity could be involved. But this is a good example. And for context, WeChat's like 90% stickers and your friends like just doing random stuff and news articles from other random news outlets like it's at least for me <laughs> I, I don't know about you I, I solve a lot of difficult problems on my wechat yeah you're clearly smarter than me <laughs> I, my, my dumb wechat friends are not doing that one of the ones i posted a while ago i got this text message like august and it was just like joe biden is a puppet of the chinese communist party blah 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 blah, blah. Um, and i just had to take, take a deep breath i was in the car or something a lot of the bad china takes from them are really into shoehorning united, the, the peculiarities of united states politics and u.s political issues into this kind of Manicane back and forth, black and white battle, similar to what uh, tankies kind of think of versus the Chinese Communist Party. The only difference being that the Chinese Communist Party is the eye of Sauron staring you down. It's like the ultimate evil as opposed to ultimate good. But it was exhausting. Like the, the entire election season was ridiculous for obvious reasons. But I think just that kind of vein of thought was really funny. One thing that came out, Chris Balding's really fake dossier about Hunter Biden's connection to China that I just sat through with my Apple pencil and was like, this is dumb. This is dumb. This is a typo. This is missing like three commas. There, It's a very low bar and it gets picked up by far-right media pretty quickly and becomes a pretty just self-sustaining jingoistic cycle of bullshit that really doesn't do anybody good. And if anything, at the end of the day, stigmatizes... China and by extension because people in general, particularly Americans, are not good at distinguishing race, country, people, and thinking, for instance, like the first hate crime recorded after 9-11 was against a Sikh man because he's wearing a turban, that yeah. sort of thing. The upshot is like, you know, this is really bad for Asian Americans and Chinese Americans in particular. Related to that, there's a lot of, especially as of late from the far right, but still even some mainstream commentators were getting a lot of woke culture, critical race theory is the cultural revolution. It's like not the cultural revolution at all because the cultural revolution is an extremely bizarre and specific set of events, <laughs> a 10 year period that existed within China. And also what? 10 million people died? It's a the functional <laughs> civil war with student factions fighting each other, the military having to get involved, people getting sent out of the countryside, destroying the four olds. The closest thing I think is, oh, like woke culture is destroying the four olds. The goal is not to be accurate there. And if it were, they'd probably have even 
a harder time, but it's just asinine. When they're saying like XYZ is like cultural revolution, they generally mean XYZ is a bunch of young people doing something I don't like, which is a little, doesn't roll off the tongue as well as cultural revolution does. It doesn't evoke the imagery in the same way, but it's still really what they're getting at. That's one that's popped up a lot in the past six months, especially around critical race theory, just ridiculous stuff. And your all-time favorite, Bad China Tape. <laughs> My all-time favorite one, I actually wrote an article about this in Foreign Policy because it was so great. It was literally Chinese people, people don't have friends. Um, that's by David P. Goldman, who is an esteemed economist and uh, lead author at Asia Times. And so he, his book was truly off the walls. I, I, remember, I read it entirely and was just sitting there being like, this cannot be real. But so yeah, David Goldman is really obsessed with the idea of this civilization. Everyone has to have these unique, discrete traits that can trace over time. David Goldman is obsessed with that in terms of Judeo-Christian civilization and the superiority of Judeo-Christian civilization. And he's incredibly Islamophobic. But he also just has this incredibly bizarre view of China and how Chinese people work. He doesn't speak Chinese. I think the only thing he's ever done is interact with businessmen. They need to see counselors or therapists or something because they're like, yeah, I had no friends. It was cutthroat from day one. All I ever looked around in my kindergarten player was like, who can I like overcome to get the bag and like win the prizes and like clearly not well-adjusted individuals. There's certainly a lot said about like incredible competition and what capitalism in China has meant for working class people and the huge pressure on students. But if your ultimate conclusion is Chinese people don't have friends because I think it's quote, they don't have an Aristotelian concept of political friendship, you're insane. That's just so unbelievably ridiculous. And I don't think I have an Aristotelian concept of political I, friendship. I probably don't either. I think I had to read, Not he didn't even write The Republic. I don't even know what he wrote because I didn't read in undergrad when I was supposed to. So apparently I have no friends either, which was news to me. But yeah, that, that's my all-time favorite one. I think that was my first tweet to go past 1,000 likes, which was a landmark. So I do have to thank David for that. This guy was good friends with Steve Bannon on the a committee of the present danger, which is a notorious neoconservative hawk body that revives itself every 20 years to decide the next foreign threat to the country is. Right now it's China, it used to be Iran, the Soviet Union. I think the Chinese people don't have friends thing is pretty fringe, but the people who write that are not nearly as fringe as they should be. Chinese people don't have friends uh, is something that I should find in the deep replies of a really stupid tweet. It's not something I should be published in any book or paper, but here we are. Jake, What's your take on Twitter? Is there anything redeemable about it as a platform? Absolutely not. Uh, just kidding. It's great that I got to come here today. Um, no, I've been on Twitter for like 10 years since I was a little young one. And it wasn't until very recently that I ever had some sort of like influence on it. I think the worst part of it is that it incentivizes anger and bad faith readings and disinformation. And I've been a witting or unwitting part of that at various points too. I have received, you know, my fair share of trollish abuse. At the end of the day, I understand that. And this is one of the things that, that it gradually has decreased my engagement with the platform. It's a glorified form of cyberbullying, <laughs> to be honest. And I think sometimes if you're a published author saying that Chinese people don't have friends, you deserve it. But I've had to navigate and learn in real time. These have consequences and actions. There are people behind the screens who are hurt by that. And again, picking on tankies often means picking on 15-year-olds. Yeah, I've started censoring it. I've definitely deleted things before where I realized like, oh, this person is a literal child who's being shit and racist, but I'm not comfortable being the arbiter of what's going on there in terms of who do I cover and who do I know. I, for a while, tried to either censor or, especially my main rule is like, there's like a real face in the profile picture and you're not a blue check, then I'm going to be much more hesitant to put your full name out there. I'm not as consistent about that as I should be, but yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine the abuse I'd receive if I were like a woman. The amount of just god-awful stuff that women journalists in particular have just had to go through on this platform is insane. And so it's not a fun platform for that reason, and huh. it can be pretty vicious. Jake, who's your favorite Twitter homophobe? 
My favorite one is the guy who called F-slur, supposed doctorate of neuroscience, who called me an F-slur and I questioned his credentials. Um, I was really invested in figuring out what's going on with the lab leak theory because I was puzzled by the sudden resurgence in media coverage of it. And I'm like a soft social sciences skills at best. I can barely code. So I don't have the equipment to go through and read these papers, which I try to do and figure the genetic blah, blah, blah. The virus indicates X, Y, Z. Like I just don't have the, the mental faculties to process that. I'm pretty dumb. And so I'd read these papers and I'm like, oh, who wrote these? And the Lancet paper by 18 for or like five virologists or whatever who are, you know, more accomplished than I will ever be and have done more for the greater good of humanity than I ever will. And then this other paper that was published in March actually by a group of researchers, many who are affiliated with a group called Drastic, which is um, like decentralized radical actors searching for the truth or something like that. One of them is a PhD in neuroscience who's just incredibly weird. He thinks COVID is a prion disease. A prion is a misfolded protein that like will cause other proteins to misfold. And so it's like terminal and incurable, incredibly rare diseases. He calls it Corona-chan, like it's an anime little toy thing. <laughs> um, so, and he's also just incredibly racist. And so I basically, I was like, this is who we're citing in these. This is the man we are citing in these papers. He's a conspiracy theorist. And he came to my mentions and called me an F-slur. And I thought it was hilarious. I've not been called that since like middle school on Xbox Live. It was legitimately funny to me. This is a flashback right here. I think my favorite non, the one, favorite one I've not interacted with on Twitter is Zero HP Lovecraft. He's a horrorist. Like he writes horror stories. Incredibly homophobic. And I think a lot of his horror is uh, derived from the fact that he's terrified of people like me being able to go to Pride and like exist. I'll be blunt in saying that I do take a lot of like schadenfreude joy in that. Screw you. Like. I exist. Still, I think first place is the neuroscientist who credentials I questioned, and uh, then he's like, you're a fag. And my mention <laughs> was truly uh, next level. That's really something you can't get anywhere else but Twitter, I think. <laughs> Anything else redeemable? From a personal perspective, there's access to experts and things like that. For better or for worse, like it allows you to bypass a lot of the the gatekeeping of the professional sphere. So when I was doing my research on Xinjiang, which really started from a genuine desire to be like, what's going on here? Skepticism of Mike Pompeo, but also complete awareness that like the Chinese government is capable of really dark acts of systematic repression. And so I went through things like Adrian Zen's original research, literally looked through those contracting documents one by one. I was able to DM him being like, hey, as a guy with a couple thousand followers, and he responded and was like, here's the original data. I've corrected it on some of his data before, the things that were missing, accessing other particularly in the Xinjiang area, like scholars, because I am not an expert on anything Xinjiang before this. I don't speak Uyghur, I speak Chinese, but I've never been to the region. And so I was relying on survivor witnesses, I was relying on Chinese uh, survival testimony, diaspora professors who have been there and who studied the region, and as well as Chinese government's official documents and propaganda and, and news sources to figure out what was going on and piece that together on my blog in a pretty systematic manner. And so that ability to access those people would probably not have existed without Twitter. And so I am thankful for that. Whether or not I would have felt compelled to do it after seeing a bunch of denialists spread really heinous just denial of anything bad ever going on in Xinjiang. Would that have happened if I had Twitter not existed in the first place is a different question. But there, in that sense, there is a positive, at least networking effect for it. It's like, I, at a personal level, I was able to access some pretty smart people and, and get their opinions on things. And I hope I was able to pass on information about things in China. I try to elevate voices whenever I can that are smart and positive about it. So that's some sort of positive maybe, but it is, at least from my standpoint, still a pretty vicious platform. Do you think there's anything that works well about the DC China policy ecosystem? Well, I will fully admit that I am still green back at this and I have not been in the game for decades or anything like that. I'm still pretty disillusioned. And in terms of what works well, I'll say it like this. I think one of the core issues, all else being equal, there's a profit motive to push for a little bit, just a little bit more militaristic or bombastic, or I guess just exaggerated China threat narrative. And the reason that is, is because a 
lot of the money that comes from these kind of not dark money, but just like more dark machinery, not in the shadow or not in the light, but not completely absent consulting firms. And it relies on money from the United States government and from the Pentagon and from things like that. And so that creates an inherent profit motive. The Pentagon does not want to buy, for instance, a report saying, actually, we don't need to worry about this. And I know this because I have seen reports like that written and I have written parts like that and we have to change them because we don't feel like that's what the client wants to see. It's not like some grand conspiracy level, but it's a subtle pushing influencing force. And so I think the think tank industrial complex, really, I do think we have a lot of issues in terms of being able to acknowledge that's a problem and it colors um, a lot of how the coverage is made. I think the inherent issue is that we assume the United States is at the end of the day always going to be the good guy, knight in shining armor. And that really clouds our vision to not even examine the motives for Chinese policy, for instance. And that doesn't mean sympathizing with it or endorsing it, but even just being able to sit down and, and look at something and say, this is why the Chinese might be doing it. I think that the classic example is over Taiwan. Um, a lot of discussions just assume that the Chinese want to take over Taiwan because they're evil tyrants who want to reunify the country. And I think there's an under-discussed aspect of uh, security. Like the Chinese government is afraid of the United States. And that fear is not totally unfounded. And Taiwan is a massive breach in a uh, security perimeter and is really scary if you're a Chinese naval planner. That doesn't excuse action, that doesn't make those policy decisions or make some sort of theorized takeover of Taiwan justifiable. But I think there's a lot of blind spots in terms of how we discuss those issues within the China watching sphere. And I think a lot of it just stems from a myopic view of good guys versus bad guys and unwillingness to empathize in a more philosophical sense and understand the underlying rationality and reasoning behind the acts of other actors in this case. That was a long-winded way of saying, no, I don't think there's any redeeming qualities. But <laughs> <laughs> I think there are some brilliant people here uh, in this field who do a lot of really interesting work and critically do so in a way that you can't necessarily do within China. It's one of the more redeeming qualities. At the end of the day, this adversarialness notwithstanding, sometimes you need that because adversarial investigative journalism doesn't necessarily really exist in China for obvious reasons. And while it's not a complete free-for-all and there are some things resembling accountability mechanisms, that kind of reporting and, and research is really important and, and something that needs to be done. And so I think the ability to do that is, is definitely unique, unfortunately, outside of China in many ways. Um, not necessarily unique, but some of it definitely unique. And that is an enduring benefit that having this pool of people who are skilled in Chinese and who know the language and, and country pretty well, but are outside of the direct, hopefully, political and legal ramifications that more truthful reporting might entail. So Jake, your take on China Twitter? China Twitter is also full of drama. I would probably rank it in the top decile in terms of like most dramatic and chaotic groups. There's a company called Graphica that does these social media graphs, uh, Twitter, and I've always wanted them to do one for China Twitter because I think it is unique. I mean, obviously, there are not a whole lot of Chinese people compared to, for instance, Weibo. And so it's a very weird environment where we're all talking about the absent referent. There are people we're talking about in their country we're talking about, but for obvious reasons, a lot of them can't participate in this conversation. No one can. There are plenty of journalists and people who jump over the Great Firewall who do. But it's a very bizarre, just a smorgasbord of people. And I think particularly as things have gotten more contentious in the past to half decade, it's just got a lot more high stakes. I've always been watching from a distance because it's been a, an academic interest of mine ever since I started learning Chinese. But really being in the thick of it is fascinating. And it's a very weird environment. It's very clicky and it's just strange. I think the embodiment actually, and I'm afraid to even talk about this because she is quite the figure and quite the controversial one. I think the embodiment of what's weird about China Twitter um, comes in the form of Naomi Wu. Naomi Wu, if you're not familiar with her, is a YouTuber who's really into tech and DIY, very talented like YouTuber tech DIY. She's a lesbian woman who lives in Shenzhen and very opinionated, which great for her. My understanding is that it's gotten her in trouble with authorities on various occasions. She is dating a Chinese woman 
and uh, are dating excuse me, Uyghur woman and is willing to obliquely acknowledge things aren't so great there. But she's also very much like in your face at reporters who uh, she disagrees with and pretty outspoken to say the least in a way that can be pretty combative and pretty vicious, I think, especially considering she has 150,000 followers. But the divide over her, I find fascinating because she's both viewed as, I think, this ultra left. People call her the queen of tankies, apologist for authoritarianism and evil in China. And at the same time, among those people, the ultra-left authoritarian apologist for China, she's not particularly popular because she's willing to, I think, often call a spade a spade in terms of politics and say, this is what I'm thinking as a Chinese person living here, as a Chinese woman, screw you. Sometimes things are not that great. She has blocked me, full disclosure. She does not like me. Like, we're not friends. <laughs> we used to be. <laughs> and then some classic Chinese Twitter drama happened in my mentions where I think uh, it was a discussion about colonialism and I got off track. And out of nowhere, someone just came and asked her, what are you doing today to help the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Which is frankly a really unfair question and one I, that I wish I had kind of pushed back on at the time. It was such a bizarre night that I was just on Twitter. I was out of it. But that kind of question I think is really unfair to ask a, a YouTuber who's already in, in the eye of the Chinese government, who we know has run into these issues before, to challenge them and say, oh, I'm, you know, sabotaging the labor transfer trains or something like that. Like, that is her... If she were doing something like that, she's obviously not. But it's a very weird kind of moralistic double standard playing on restrictions that Chinese people exist under and, and using it as a weapon against them. That's one of the things I think that drives all of the drama, just that kind of like moral hoity-toitiness. But also I think there is a degree of arrogance there, I think. And on the other side, there is a lot of pretty vicious nationalists who cannot handle the idea that anything is ever wrong. And they feel the need to defend their patriotism in a way that's vicious and gross. Nationalism in general lends itself to people being really mean online, and that's no less true of Chinese nationalism. There's a whole confluence of factors there. It's a very weird environment. It's a very weird sort of playing field because you have so many different actors and so many different groups of people, many of whom are tied together by knowledge of this language and culture and you know, having lived there. But it's also, again, absent in many ways because of just the Great Firewall and the way that it's harder to access that sort of information, um, harder to access the people you're talking about, um, at least on that platform directly. Although there's still plenty of people that you can, so that's not a complete excuse, but... Yeah, that's my long-winded answer for what the hell China Twitter is, because it's a very weird environment. You want to do a China Talk roast or any feedback you have for me? No, I okay, I love the show. I admit I did not listen to podcasts during lockdown because I was like, just sitting in my chair staring at the wall. The most recent one I listened to was Taiwan slash Eve Online. I really appreciate your very banterous subject like this series one. Jake, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs>
请让。